For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Coaches Network, bringing the game together. And I was like, oh, okay, so under 10s he came in. He's like, yeah. And I was like, oh, okay. And now he's a second-year scholar. And he said, yeah. And I said, and he's never been able to use his right foot in that eight years. He went, no. Nah. I said, well, what have you been doing then? The Coaches Network, bringing the game together. Now listen to the Coaches Network, a podcast aiming to bring people at the heart of coach and player development together. My name is Coach Yas, a UEFA A licensed, FA Advanced Youth Award and FA Goalkeeper B licensed coach. With over 10 years of experience working in youth football from grassroots right through to Premier League academies, I'm currently operating as an affiliate tutor for the FA alongside working towards a Masters in Performance Football Coaching. Today I'm going to be joined by my co-host and the Coaches Network Analysis Specialist, Coach Ben. Ben is a UEFA A licensed coach who holds the FA Youth Award and a Masters in Sports Coaching, with 10 years of experience including working across the male and female youth development pathways, alongside a vast experience on individual, player and team performance analysis. And as part of our Insight series, we'll be joined by a range of individuals working across multiple disciplines within the coaching world in order to explore their journeys and dig deeper into their experiences so that we can leave you with some golden nuggets to help you reach your full potential. Right guys, welcome back to another episode of the Coaches Network. I'm Coach Yas and today I'm joined by my co-host Ben. Today we have a very special guest with us, uh, first team manager at Aldershot Town, Danny Saul. How are you doing Danny? I'm good guys, thank you. How are you? All good, all good. Look, I'm going to get straight into it. Let's get to the nitty gritty then. You know, you know, first team manager, older shot, but journey had to start somewhere. Would you mind just taking us back to where it did start? Yeah, I think that um, for me, I was an aspiring player like most of us when, we, when we're children and you have that dream of, of kind of having that career. And I kind of, when I was about 14, I, I did a little bit of work with some of my, someone who worked for my dad, he's, he's, his tiny little boys had a little football team and they said, oh, will you go and do some some coaching with them, just have a mess around with them. And I, I'll be honest with you, from that day, I kind of had a, an interest in coaching because I really enjoyed it. I, I got a lot of pleasure out of it. And so obviously as the next few, three or four or five years went past and I realised that I probably weren't going to reach the level that I wanted to from a playing perspective, I kind of took my, started to take my coaching a lot more seriously. Um, I set up my first kind of business at 17, just before I turned 18, with some grassroots coaching. And it kind of grew from there, really. And I was fortunate enough that I, I had a good grounding with grassroots 
grassroots coaching. I had, I had advanced courses. I had soccer schools. We had a PE company. Um, I run my own Sunday morning club, and I think that that really gave me a good grounding in the sense of of what it takes to work with young young people. Um, I think because that's crucial. I think the person's more far more important than the player. I think you've got to make sure that you know you know that, that the people that you're working with and what makes them tick, what doesn't make them tick, what, what things they've got going on in the background. And I think if it wasn't for grassroots football and my, my kind of businesses I had in the early days, I don't think I would have as much experience in that as I, as I do now. So that was that was a, obviously a, a big big contributing factor to my, to my career. Um, but yeah, we, we, we started to get some success and, and scouts started to pick up boys from our courses and they started taking players from our, from our, uh, our Sunday morning teams and that's when I got approached by uh, Chelsea and asked would I head up a centre for them in, in Redbridge and obviously, yeah, of course, I, I'm a, I was a, quite a staunch West Ham fan at the time so to put the Chelsea kit on was a was an interesting dilemma. Job. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> dilemma for the family because they were like, what are you doing? Where did you, you, you look like Chelsea's thrown up all over you, you've got Chelsea everywhere and and but no listen it was great for me and and I, I got to work alongside someone like Jim Fraser who's obviously in the higher echelons of, of Chelsea now and he's a top guy and you learn a lot from these people um, and it kind of went from there guys and I was fortunate that every time I um, I kind of had an opportunity to to step on the it was it was someone coming someone come and took me from that environment and and I, and I was I was very fortunate in that sense that I'd kind of built that reputation that people kind of liked what I was doing, and I think we uh, we ended up going through quite a few clubs in that period of time. So yeah, it, it, it was really good, and that's where it kind of all started for me. Just on that, um, you've obviously you had your extensive sort of grassroots experience, and you were quite successful there. Like like you said, brought a couple of boys into um, the pro game uh, through that. How was that change from? going from like coaching in the grassroots environment to Chelsea who's like the pinnacle of the youth development um, stage at that point there yeah I think that we, we to be honest I mean it was a development centre so obviously we weren't working with the the top top players we were working with the potentially top players and but no it does change it, the, 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 the the sort of whole structure around it changes because you've got a group of young lads when you're doing grassroots football that are paying to be there and hang off every word you're saying and and I don't mean it's any disrespect to grassroots coaching but sometimes you can you don't have to necessarily be a good coach to get quite a few kids come to your courses as long as they like you and they think you're funny the parents trust you they'll send the kids back when you yeah. step into that academy environment you've got you've got You've got levels to live up to, and I think that the best players challenge the coaches just as much as the coaches challenge the players. I think that was that was a great learning curve for me because you couldn't just on you know the old. I'm just going to quickly write down a session before the session starts because yeah. it yeah. You, you can't do that. You know, well, you, well, you can, you can, but you soon get sussed yeah. out if you yeah. if you haven't got something planned and you know what you're doing. These I, I see some of these these young academy coaches now and 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 it's not, not a disrespect to them and I think where they haven't had that grounding of having to be in those environments and learn about really planning and understanding the sessions that you're putting on um, I watch their sessions and they're good sessions but I find it more of a, a facilitation as opposed to a development process and I think that was probably the biggest shift for me was that that level that you've got to be at every session that you deliver 
Yeah, and you know, just on that then, Danny, you know, you talk there about having that grounding. I feel like, you know, there's certainly a lot of coaches out there who probably do that, you know, the whole session plan, write it up before the session, probably have any problem, they don't go to the extent of writing it down, I just think about it in their head and say, yeah, and I saw this the other day, I'm going to do that. Now, yeah. I think a lot of younger coaches or newer coaches, less experienced coaches, shall we say, um, maybe think they can get away with that. But you're right, you know, the players can suss it out. The players, the players are not as, uh, I guess, naive as some of us may, may initially think. But just on that, you know, you talked there about it, you know, putting on a coaching session. Now, it's interesting. I was having a conversation with someone the other day around the idea of having a coaching session versus a learning session. Now, yeah. you know, would you, you know, would you care to share maybe some of your thoughts on that aspect? Because obviously, you know, through that whole pathway where you may be developing players to go on and become professional footballers outside of that grassroots environment and maybe now looking at the development centre and obviously I'm sure we'll talk more about whatever else you did later on in your journey, but... How much of an importance was it to really understand and really hold on to that? That this needs to be a learning session and not just a coaching session for the players. I think from so I'm going to skip a little bit because Chelsea, the development centre was was different in the sense that we needed to keep the players wanting to come back because Chelsea wanted to sign them, and there was a lot more parent pleasing involved than there was probably development. If I'm honest, and I think when you look at these pre academies, I've, I've been at. Chelsea, I've been at Charlton, I've been at West Ham, um, and and I think that from my perspective, when when you when I've seen the work in the pre academy, it's very more it's directed more at making sure that parents feel that this is the right place for their child because they love it, they love turning up, they're going to be driving in three or four or five times a week. So I'm going to jump to kind of when I sort sort of got my first proper academy role at Charlton, and I think that it's a crucial that coaches have a balance. I, I don't think there is a a written rule in I mean you know they talk about blocking your sessions out and it's 20 minutes for this it's half an hour for this it's, it's 25 minutes for that across the course of the week we're going to cover these kind of criteria. we're going to have this kind of um, sort of philosophy and uh, in place I think you've got to be planned and prepared but you've got to be adaptable as well because there's parts of your sessions where you are going to let it go and it's going to be about the, the kids developing themselves and, and learning from their mistakes and trying to through, through little prompts from the side of the pitch get things right but there are going to also be sessions where you are going to stop it a lot and you are going to step in and you are going to say hold on a minute like, we need to get this right this is something obviously this is probably a little bit as they get a bit older but because our job as, as, as educators because we are in education we are teaching we're teaching the game of football is to make sure that if there are any areas where that are great for those players because they all learn in different ways that we're there to actually step in and, and give them that piece of information and you, you, I hear lots of people say let the kids coach themselves the game's a teacher and all this kind of stuff well that's great that's brilliant but just on that note sorry Dan to cut you there what are your thoughts on that actual phrase I'm not going to lie to you you know my personal opinion is I think it's nonsense yeah I, I think you will get players if you no listen if, I, I, we, had a, we had a conversation once I think that there are some academies and, and, and obviously it's, we're trying to be professional but um, there's some academies that they might as well just employ referees and have games every training session and they will probably produce as many players if not more than what they're probably producing now so <laughs> I, don't, I, I think I think you will always get players through that sure will you will you get the top players no you 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 have coach, you employ coaches for a reason. It's called the development process for a reason. You wouldn't go into school and say, don't worry, don't... His, his, his 30 maths books, let the kids teach themselves. You wouldn't do that. Um, 
And I know that that's a lot more theoretical than it is practical. But from a practical perspective, you still have to be shown how to do things. You still have to find the details, like even stupid things. I was working with a player on a Zoom call the other day and we was doing something and he was getting... And all I did was slightly adjust his, his body stance and, and, and it was just a slight change probably from this angle just to this angle and just to get some kind of reward for what he's doing. Now, he may well have. He may well have discovered that himself. But how, who knows how long that would have taken? And mm. you know what it's like in football with these poor, these poor lads very much on one or two year deal. They've got, they've got to get there. They've got to learn. They've got to develop. And I think from that perspective, coach's job is to do exactly that. He's there to coach. Definitely. And just on that, you know, you, you talked there about that finer detail that you kind of raise awareness to for that player. You know, it'd be interesting to get your thoughts. You know, obviously, it's a conversation I've had with many coaches and uh, coach educators alike that over the last few years in particular there's been a massive shift in the way the coach education pathway looks um, I mean I think myself and yourself were back on the advanced youth award in 2017 um, yeah. and you know there's that whole element of making a holistic and being a very blended in the, in the four corners approach to the, to where the way things are now but before that wasn't the case and there was a lot more focus on the technical aspect of things and that's right through the pathway obviously when the youth awards came in it created a massive contradiction and a lot of questions were being asked as to what, what we actually meant to be doing here. Now, in the core pathway previously, the technical detail might have been really lent to you a lot by the, by the tutors and, you know, there was a lot, that was maybe what the people on the courses like myself and yourself maybe would have gone for really to gain that, that technical understanding. What would you say are some of the challenges that we face now in terms of coaches maybe looking to get that technical understanding where they may feel to some extent it's been kind of stripped away a little bit or at least tailored a tapered away rather um what would your advice be to coaches maybe looking to bring that detail to their work and go about maybe actually obtaining that information if they if they haven't got it through the courses anymore yeah i mean i've always been really open whenever coaches have kind of approached me as much as i can like linkedin is is obviously i, I could spend all day just replying to messages on linkedin and, and i do my best to try and do so because i, I I was fortunate that I had people that I could lean on, but I also had to go and just graft and get out on the coaching field. And just like we, we tell players to go out in the development phases of their career, to go out and make mistakes and learn from their mistakes and, and try and develop. Coaches have to do the same. You have to you have to, you have have to to plan a session every now and again and go, you know what, I'm just going to give that a go. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But the key thing for me is, one, why didn't it work? Um, two, sort of being brave enough to stop something mid-flow mid because I think coaches are nervous of that. They set up a session, they put a practice on, players are playing, it clearly isn't working. And rather than going, no, 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 and being brave enough to go, I'm not, it's not, it's not having it, let's stop that, let's, let's adjust it, let's move a few cones around, let's change the, the diameter of the pitch or the, um, or, or the rules and the constraints, constraints within the session. And I think coaches have got to be brave enough to go out there and like they preach to the players, like you've got you've got to break a few eggs to make an omelette, as they say. Then you've you've got to do the same as a coach. It is it has shifted. Um, I I've, I thoroughly enjoyed the advanced youth award. I have to be honest. I don't think that you could do the advanced youth award without doing something alongside it because the coaching detail and it, the level of work you want to do with the players when it comes to even even down to like, like we're talking about stride cadence you're talking about angles angles of approach and that that's an experience thing that's something where you've got to even if you haven't necessarily played at a high level yourself if you've got a player that's trying to learn a certain technique go and do the work 
YouTube is an unbelievable platform for people now. You can always get footage of players and you can always get footage of games. So whether it's technical, tactical, whatever it is, you've got to be willing to go and do the work to actually research it and look at it. And for me, they're the coaches that will, will step on and strive, not the ones that are waiting for the FA to give them handouts of information. That's, that's just my opinion. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I totally agree. So it's like um, making yourself responsible for you know, your education and obviously going out there to look for the information yourself, like not just depending on the national govern, governing body to you know, administer such things. Um, at your time at West Ham, uh, you were the lead, lead uh, foundation phase coach there, lead youth development, head of coaching. Now, that's a that's obviously what some people see as a fruitful sort of um, progression through the through the club. Uh, what sort of things were you doing in that time that was giving you the opportunities to, you know, move, um, move up and get like these bigger roles? There? Yeah, I, I think that I used the word in the last sort of segment about being brave, and I, I was quite, I was fortunate enough that I kind of had a relationship with Tony Carr previous, um, so I kind of knew what he was about, and the guys are. Guy's a, a genius in the game. He, he he produced him and his staff. He would say, obviously admit that it was just him on his own. There was a big staff behind him. They produced so many players. So I knew that I had someone who had real core foundations and a real core philosophy in place. But I also knew that if if you as long as you as long as you had something with substance, he would sit down and listen to what you had to say. And yeah. for me, I wanted to. I didn't just want to be when I started my first role was a foundation phase lead. I didn't just want to be a foundation phase lead. I wanted to do something revolutionary. I wanted to, I wanted to change things. So I was the first foundation phase coach to introduce um, sort of uh, midweek training during the day. It's a day release for foundation phase. So we had nines, tens, elevens, and twelves coming in for four days, once a week at their respected age groups. Doing doing full day release from their primary schools, and there was a lot of there was a lot of um, debate whether that was the right thing to do. But we put something in place. We put an education package in place with it. So the, some of the tournaments and some of the fundamental things that we run alongside the Premier League uh, were initiatives that I was fortunate enough to be a part of the initial stages of. So I kind of wanted to visionary is a big word I'm not because obviously you're talking visionaries generally talk about the leaders of the world but I'm, I'm not going to obviously talk about that but from my little my little world my little part that I was in um, I don't leave anything something. out Danny you know you, it's, all, it's all action here man everything yeah, no, yeah. Of course, I, I, I wanted to do something different I yeah. saw everything that everyone else was doing and I think from our perspective I wanted to be that person that do you know what when I left that role I had left something in place that I was either the instigator of or a key part of yeah. and I think that's what opened the door up for me for my, my progression and, and, I, and I've tried to keep that in every role that I've done even now as a manager I'm trying to do things differently than what I've seen in other places especially with regards to, to developing young young footballers so just on that as well you know you talk there about wanting to do things differently and uh, there's a lot of maybe coaches that might be listening to this that have got a similar mindset I think it shouldn't go amiss and it shouldn't be, uh, I guess, lost in translation in that doing something different also has to be something that's going to be beneficial. And I think a lot of coaches out there, is, you know, certainly from my experience anyway, I've observed coaches saying, no, I'm doing this because I want to be different, right? But you're doing different, but you're not actually helping anyone. Um, and I think it's very important to kind of not lose sight of what the difference is trying to gain, if that makes sense. 
hundred percent. I mean, look, don't get me wrong. When I say that we, I wanted to do things differently. The amount of research and yeah. work that I put to making sure that that I mean, it could have failed because obviously you never, never know. You, you're never a hundred percent sure, especially when you come to something like football that it's going to work. But no, there, there was a lot of work done in the background because you've got to present it. I mean, Tony Carr was the academy manager at the time. I've got to sit in front of him, Paul Heffer and Nick Aycock, who were the, the senior management team at that particular moment in time, and sell the fact that I'm going to want a little pot of money to put aside for what I want to do to develop our young players. And and they do. They're going to hit you with scepticism. They're going to hit you with critique. They're going to ask some probably uncomfortable questions. And you have got to be able to back it up with... I couldn't give facts because obviously it was a new initiative. No one had done it before. But what I could give was evidence that I'd shown from sports from other countries. For example, I look a lot at the American sports. They pull their kids out of school. They're going to full-time sporting. As soon as they recognise they've got some kind of potential. And that's why I think the Americans are ahead in a lot of sports because they specialise and they've got real real strategy around how they develop their, their athletes, whatever sport that's in. And I think that obviously we can't go to that extreme with foundation face football players, but what you can do is you can take snippets of that and, and can you drip feed that into a programme that, you know what, actually these lads or, or girls now with the academy systems in place for the, for the female game, can they benefit from those, from those environments? And in regards to um, that sort of change there that you've done, that, I have to admit, like, at that time, that, that would have been quite revolutionary as well. And um, with that, what sort of benefits and potential shortcomings did you see uh, with bringing the players out on the day release? Yeah, the, the, the obvious question that was that was thrown at me was about their, their players in the education, because obviously they would have missed some core subjects. Um, for me, what we did was we, we kind of tried to address that the best we can so the children would be supplied by work by their school. And then through the periods of the day, they'd have blocks of lessons with teachers that we brought in to sort of oversee that program. So we had to get around that. And that didn't work smoothly to start off with. We had to really play with what was the best time to get them out on the pitch, when was the best time to have them in the class, little breaks to be put in place because obviously they can't just play football the whole day and not get anything. So that was probably the, the, the only thing I really saw as something we had to evolve quite quickly. The benefits from a football perspective, socially it was great because what we did is we had a, a minimum of two age groups in at any one time. So that, that those maturation type sessions where you want to look at players in different environments, older against younger, younger against older. Um, we, we, we got to see that. They got to familiarise themselves with the building, so they were in during the day, so they'd come across players. For example, one of the things that I like to do at lunchtime is I'd bring some of the scholars and first and second year pros in, would sit them on tables of what they perceive to be their relatively favourite positions. They would come in, they would have lunch with them. And I don't think there's anything more powerful than a, than a nine-year-old walking through a building and one of the first-year pros coming up to him, putting his arm around him, now he's training today. And I think it created a real... And I kind of... Kind of liked it because of the Ferguson mentality when he when he was in, in his prime at Man United and the fact that he wouldn't really ever speak to the younger players about discipline and that he would in, empower the senior pros to go in and have those conversations and and that's what I've done I've just taken snippets of the, the sort of people that I admire and how can you influence nine year olds because they've got access to everything now nine year olds that you cannot kid a nine-year-old because by why you're trying to spill out your speech they've already googled everything you said to find out whether what you said is true so you've got to know what you're doing and 
I think from a nine-year-old's perspective, they're far more receptive, um, receptive to new challenges and new things than what people give them credit for. And that was kind of the environment that we wanted to create. And I think just on that, you know, you talk there about essentially what is the modern day player. You know, there's a lot more, you know, even us having this conversation over Zoom, this is this and these are the times that we're in, obviously under different circumstances right now, you know, with the lockdown and everything. However, how important is it then, you know, for coaches cause to stay up to date with what the players are, right, are really experiencing themselves? Because, you know, there's a lot of coaches who maybe are very... I'll use it loosely, but maybe a bit old school, and they're saying, "Oh, well, I'm the coach, and this is this is my way of doing things," and you kind of just got kind of fit in with that. I guess in terms of maybe building a, a an environment or a platform for those younger players to really succeed in your under your, I guess, your supervision. How important do you think it really is? You know, just to really get down onto their level and understand things from their perspective, and make it because you know it's, it's about really creating an environment for them, don't you think? Hundred percent. Look. I, but- the latter stages of, of, of the relationship with a player, that I'm the coach and this is what we're doing, is is still a vital part of their development. But before you get to that stage, you've got to earn trust and you've got to build rapport with the players. And that doesn't matter whether they're 7, 17, 27, 37, doesn't matter. They've still got to be rapport. You've got to have an understanding of their situation. So if you know that, that little Johnny or little Iola or little Manny or whoever it is who's coming into the training ground, he's just travelled... 50 minutes in the car, straight from school, probably not eaten, etc., etc. You've got to know those things. And what's trendy at the time, like Fortnite's flying at the minute. So whenever I talk to a young director, I, I like it. My whole family, we all play Fortnite. It's a great thing to... You've got to find little things that, that, um, that are crucial. One of the things I used to say to my coaches when I was trying to... When I did my CPD events and stuff is, find out one thing about that player that you can say to that player that's different to everybody else when they walk through the door, whether it's, a, how's your brother, how's your sister, how's your mum, how's your dad, how's your granddad, whoever it is, how's how athletics today because you know that they're a little bit late because they do athletics. Then the next time, can you find out through that conversation, can you find out a second thing about that player so that when you speak to them next time, you've got a couple of things in like you can have a conversation with that, it's not, that, that makes them different and individual to every single one. So it's not just... Hello, mate. How you doing? At school, high five, smack him on the head. Off you go. Next one, high five. And and you you're thinking, obviously, whenever you're smacking a kid on the head, by the way. So I just go on. Like but, but you understand? You understand what we're saying? Like, there's no individualism to that. That's just a group of players coming in. It's like a conveyor belt. In you come. Next, next. Having that kind of personal touch. That's what builds rapport. And then once they trust you and they know that what you're doing is for the best of them, you can be a little bit more dictatorial with what you're doing in your sessions and things because they know you're going to be doing what's best for them. And I think that's that balance we talked about earlier of knowing when you need to step in and say, no, that's not acceptable. This is what we're doing. This is how we're doing it. This is what I want done. And actually, this is a bit more freedom. Come on in. Let's see where this takes us because you know what? I've had sessions in the past where... I kind of looked at a progression, think I'm not sure I'm going to involve this. And then I saw one of the kids out of the corner might do something and thought, there's my progression, bang. And there's been other sessions where they've gone off the cuff a little bit and it's not, and I've had to bring them back in and say, no, 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 I want you to stay within this framework for this session because this is the this is the, the kind of the core outcome that I want from it. So I think you, it's about balance, but my, the biggest thing for me is rapport. You've got to be able to... to to be able to relate to those players, whatever age group it is, because if you can't, you're never really going to fully have them. In, and that's, in my mm. opinion, you're never really going to fully have their attention. I think you just on there, you talk about, uh, you know, 
something that I was discussing with a coach the other day about the idea of you know letting the practice run and not maybe sometimes you know they can be guilty of letting it run too much and not really lose and maybe sometimes losing sight of the focus that they're really trying to get in on and you know just talk, just talk to a little bit to that in that how important it is for us to as coaches recognize when things are running off track and when they're not because I feel like sometimes we get coaches you know and I'm not going to generalize here but we do get coaches who maybe just let the session run a little bit and think it's just going to bring it back bring itself back to where it needs to come to and it never really gets there and obviously if you let the session run too far away from you to you know in a short moment it's gone yeah I, I, we, I'll give you a little bit of a funny story so I, we, we did a, a little event and, and I was like right okay I want you I want you to play in a couple of sessions based around these themes and I had one coach that probably the ball rolled about one and a half minutes out of the 15 because he was talking for the other 13 and a half minutes and I had another coach that didn't say one word throughout the whole 15 minutes of the session and I kind of laughed and said, look, I'd love to marry you together and have this hybrid coach because you both had some great qualities in there because you had some great detail and you said nothing at all, but the kids had a great time. And I think from my perspective, it's again, it, we talk about balance all the time. I think for me, one of the biggest judges of a session is how well the session is going. If the session starts to go really well and the players are doing everything that you want them to do, for me personally, that's when you need to step in and change the session. Because if they've accomplished everything you're doing, they're soon going to get bored because they can do it. And I think when coaches are scared sometimes to have chaos in their sessions, they're scared for it to actually go wrong. But actually, if you're really trying to develop someone, you've got to take them out of their comfort zone in points in the practices. And you, you watch these seconds, I'm sure you've all come across the coach. He's standing on the side of the pitch, he's doing a possession, whatever, 8v4 or whatever it is, and they're popping the team for fun. He's going, good, great, brilliant, fantastic. Look how good. But they're not really learning anything, are they? Because they can already do that. So what, what, what you're actually highlighting is, here's what they can already do. And look how great I am for making them do it. And, and the parents, and you bow into the parents and they're clapping you. Do you know what I mean? It's, it, it becomes a little bit more about the coach than it does about what they're doing. Me, I'd be in there going, right, okay, now it's, I don't know, 7v5. Come on in, let's see how that is. Let's see, how you, let's see if you can pop them now. And suddenly, before you know it, you're in a 6v6. And now let's see who's got real tempo of the ball. And, and I think so many coaches focus on, on, on actually how does it look aesthetically from the outside looking in. And, and when you see them letting them run for quite a long period of time, it's probably because, not because they're doing anything wrong, they're probably just enjoying watching what they've put on is working. And, and, it, and, it, and, it, and it does. That's why I can't be a referee, because I enjoy watching. So I stand <laughs> in the pitch and, I, and everyone's going, ref! And I'm like, yeah, where's... Oh, yeah, it's me. Yeah, yeah, sorry, Frank. Because I think you have, to, you have to be brave enough to have that comfort of knowing that this is, at some point, this is going to be chaotic. It's going to look bad because they're not going to quite get it. There are the times when you probably could let the players run a little bit more, say, come, let's see how long, let's see if they can get towards it and then strip it back and say, right, OK, maybe we can, we'll modify that, let's take it back a step. But, yeah, no, you, you've did, again, you're probably going to get bored of me saying it. For me, it's all about balance. You have to balance out and know. And then, do you know what? Sometimes it is just a case of, do you know what, tonight, shackles are off. But explain that to the kids. Let yeah. them know that tonight's about. You know, and it's because if they know, you just touch on the. Sorry, go on. No, no, sorry, you'll see, you'll see something different. Yeah. If you just turn and put a session, they don't know what they're doing. They don't know what your thoughts are. What's going on in your head? 
how can you then criticise that they're not doing things exactly how you want them to do because they don't they're not psychic are they yeah and I think it just, it just reminds me of a time when I've been working and what I try to do with a lot of my players when I work with them I'm very open with them and even if it comes to trying a new practice I'll even say to them look I've not tried this practice before but this is what I'm hoping will happen and these are the expectations I have of you guys within it and I think that again comes back to what you're saying about that building that rapport and really establishing that trust with them so that they know that you know it's not just a uh, almost a dictatorship it is no we're in we're in this together it's a combination of us working together to try and get to a better place for both parties and I think that is a key aspect you know and really what I take away from what you're saying there is something that you touched on right at the start of the conversation really in that it's about developing and building a relationship with that person before you identify themselves as a player um, yeah. and I think that is you know fundamental to player development as a whole that's, that's staff development as well yeah. that's staff I've, I've managed a lot of staff and, and, I, and I've, I've got to do that now I've got a backroom staff now you have to it's just, it's just people you mm. just whoever you deal with whatever industry you're in if you can have the most successful people I've ever kind of been privileged enough to listen to them speak or, or whatnot. They, all they talk about is relationships. How do you treat people? And that's why when we recruited in the summer and in the process we're going through now, what type of person are you? Are you the sort of person we want in our dressing room that's going to take our club to the next step that we want to go to? Uh, Definitely. Yeah, crucial. You talk a bit there about um, you know your role in terms of leading others and you know essentially managing a backroom staff. You know, I just want to talk a bit about how you've gone from obviously going from youth development now to. I guess establishing yourself into the first team game, and you know, currently sitting as the first team manager at Aldershot Town. Can you just talk us a bit about how that came along, and you know, some of the challenges and expectations of yourself within that role for maybe that those that haven't experienced that and want to potentially go down that path themselves. Yeah, I mean, I had some great years at Chelsea, Charlton, and and West Ham. Charlton and West Ham, I was there for five and a half and six, just over six years respectively, and and, and I loved it, and I still love youth development I think it's something that will always be a passion of mine because I like working with people if I can help people become better then and I generally find when you're trying to do that they end up making you better as well and I think that I've always got passion for that but I started to get to the, the kind of when I started to come to the end of my brain, uh, role at West Ham I've been accepted on my pro license and I've never been one to do qualifications just because I want to have a qualification. I've, I, I wanted to do it because I want to do it for a reason. And I've always had those aspirations of working in the first team environment. I think that I've always been very uh, publicly outspoken about creating opportunities for young players and, yeah. and making sure that if you've got a system in place where you're trying to produce players, then they actually get the chance to, to, to show what they're capable of doing. And I suppose... The, my mentality was the easiest way to effect that is to actually become a manager myself and give those young players an opportunity. So I, kind of, I got into the pro licence. I was um, fortunate enough to do that. And But then, to be honest with you, I had, I had a phase where I was out of work and I, I left West Ham with the kind of... I say, I'm probably going to say the arrogance of thinking because of what I'd done with, with the clubs I've been at, because of my experience, because of the qualifications I had behind me, that I would just get a job. Um, and it didn't quite come so easy and what it did do is allow me to go and do a lot of research um, work with some fantastic coaches I went and did some consultancy stuff and going into clubs and look, just, just taking little snippets off people and then I got an opportunity to, to go into Braintree as an assistant manager and it was 
it was brilliant because suddenly you're in this dressing room and it, every, everything you do is crucial to keeping your job. Whereas I think that people can, you can get a bit stale in academy environment because I don't know many academy coaches that get sacked because the under nines haven't beaten Reading on Sunday and or they, they've lost five games in a row. Um, so it was a different challenge to me, one that I loved and thrived on to be fair. Um, but when it comes to actually getting the manager's job at Braintree and then and then obviously latter being being given the opportunity all the shot, I think managing managing staff, managing people is something that I, I like doing. I'd like to consider myself quite a personable character. I like to I like getting on with people. I, I always have a mantra that you all start with my respect and it's yours to lose, as opposed to you've got to earn my respect because I think. Who, who am I to sit here and say you've got to earn my respect? Because I think that we've all we've all achieved things in our lives that are, are worthy of respect. So, from my perspective, it, it just it adds that great environment and culture for me, where I, we can work and everyone can hopefully develop and thrive together. But um, yeah, it was, it was an interesting an interesting journey from Braintree to Aldershot. So uh, we got there eventually. Yeah, just on that, like on. Um... You obviously went through that period that between West Ham and Braintree and you speak about that and to be honest that's like a potential reality for anyone that's stepping into that sort of first team realm where there may be periods of it that they may be out of the job yeah how was it in terms of um, the challenges that you had with your mindset at that time there because I, I find it quite interesting that you've done all those things because like, a lot of people well some uh, most people would um maybe wallow in that sort of moment there where you still you, you kind of saw it as an opportunity to like further progress yourself like um, just talk a bit more about that like how did you develop that sort of mindset there that like, you were just looking for that continual development it wasn't it wasn't easy I, I, I mean I'm quite open and honest about it now I um, I actually did my pro license project on it and I suffered with, with, with quite a bit of mental health in that period because I, I came out of a job and barring actually completing the course. I was on the pro licence. As an A-licence coach, I was an advanced youth world holder. I, I would, I'd been involved in development of players for 15, 16 years. And there's jobs I was going for, which if I'm honest, and I don't mean it's disrespectful, but I'll be honest, I thought that actually were probably a little bit below what I was capable of doing. I wasn't even getting an interview. And, and, I, and I, I kind of, I did, I, I, stuff, I suffered for a while and I found it really tough. But you know what? You have to turn the corner at some point and realise that if that's what you really want to do, then you've got to you've got to utilise every kind of contact you've got, every avenue you've got to try and better yourself. And how can you how can you make the best of what's a not great situation? I, I did some stuff for the media, which gave me some income, so I didn't have to worry so much about that. Um, and, and I think, from my perspective, if if you want to make the transition, especially someone like myself who hasn't played in the Premier League or in, in the Football League I've, I've, I've had, a, I had a long non-league career that's probably not if you could you could probably fit it on the back of a postage stamp so it's not not like an illustrious one we we have got to understand we've got to do more than everyone else as as, as people and I'm not saying that's right but that, is, that unfortunately is the industry and I think from my perspective I know that there's going to come a time where I could potentially be out of work again and I've got, I've got to deal with that again and you have to when you make that step from academy football into first team the likelihood is if you go on the, on the national averages that within 14 months you could be unemployed again 
So I think that you have to have to brace yourself. You have to prepare yourself. If you go in with a men's mindset of knowing that along your journey, you've got to, even now, even working at Aldershot, I've just completed my LMA diploma in, in football management because I know that I need to keep adding strings to my bow because if I don't, I'll fall behind. And so when, when that time does come, whenever that might be where I am looking for another job again, I've got to be I've got to be up to speed and up to up to the trends with what's going on and it's not easy it is it is a mental toughness thing but I, I read a lot I do a lot of reading in regards to mindset leadership and and kind of that focus around being successful and striving to constantly be better and I think that we always preach that to the players and you have to take your own advice sometimes because that is for me. If, if if I want to get to where I want to get to, because I don't care that I haven't played in the Premier League or played for England, I want to manage at the top level. Mm. That's what I want to do. And people can laugh at me. People can say it's never going to happen. But I'm not going to stop trying, and I'm going to keep doing everything I can to do it. And if if I get there, great. If I don't, I don't. But one thing's for sure: it won't be for the want of trying. Definitely. And you know, just touch on there about you know, uh, I guess the different resources that you can kind of tap into. You talked about books. Um, briefly there but just interested to know whether you've got any inf- major influences maybe in the, possibly in the form of a mentor I know that is you know as time goes on you know it, it, it leaves you open to having potentially a longer list but is there any particular mentors that you can think of that have given you some key lessons that you'd like to share with us today yeah I think that I've had I've had a lot to be honest people that have influenced me and some directly some indirectly um some in a negative way which has helped me to develop what what I don't ever want to be like and what I ever want to do I think that you, I'm, I'm a big try and make a silver cloud a silver line out of a silver out of any cloud sort of thing that's what my kind of mentality on stuff I think obviously t- in my early stages of my development um, Steve Avery at Charlton um, and and Tony Carr at West Ham they were they were big influences on me because Steve's a very methodical guy and he's got a great manner around him and he's very assertive he's very assured in what he does he doesn't there's not a lot of movement with Steve it is this is how it is but he does it in a way that really kind of he still manages to empower you and make you feel that you're valued he's a top top guy and obviously Tony's reputation speaks for itself and when you listen to these little snippets I mean don't get me wrong there was times when me and Tony fell out we had disagreements about stuff and I think that one of the things that I have to respect about him is he never dwelled on it. It was once you once you had it, it was done, and and then you generally revisited the conversation again, and it was a completely different environment. And actually, we both ended up getting a little bit of what we wanted. And and I think he's some of the details he brought out about the development of the players they brought through at West Ham, just just and and also the way they were managed at the club. It just gives you those those snippets of takeaways you, when you talk about golden nuggets earlier that they, they you take it away and you add it to your repertoire from a manager perspective Alex Ferguson's always been one of my heroes like I, I, I I've read everything he's written um when I was growing up I, I, obviously my family we split down the middle half West Ham half Tottenham and and we all go and that's, that's how it was when we were kids but one of my best friends at school he was a Man United fan and it was, it was not long before they signed Cantona that I started to really kind of look at them and I think it was the year they won the FA Cup I think Ferguson was under pressure they went on that cup run and they won the FA Cup it kind of apparently saved Ferguson's job whether that's true or not I don't know but it saved the job he, from that point I kind of took a real interest in Man United and what he was doing and watching how he evolved the club 
Uh, not only that, the, the evolution of his backroom staff, the constant shift, the development of the trends that he took from when the team was being successful in the league to developing a winning Champions League team, how they evolved their football philosophy every season. And and I think he's a, he's a major influence for me. So he would definitely probably not even know who I am, but he definitely has influenced my my career indirectly. I think that I've, I've, I've had some good people that I speak to um, Jason Radcliffe, who's part of the LMA, he's a, he's, he's a mentor for the LMA. I've lent on him a few times. Um, Nigel Pearson, he's he was on my LMA course. And I've, I've I've spoke to him several times about things that I've been concerned about about myself and what I'm doing. And again, he's he's got a great manner around him. He's got this reputation, Nigel. But you know what? Like, if you ever want to be calmed down and and set straight and put back in the right direction, he's a great one to talk to. And if I'm honest, we all managers talk to each other. Like I'm, I'm constantly on the phone to, to guys at all different levels, whether it's Premier League, Championship, League One, League Two, even some guys at foreign clubs, and trying to pick people's brains on just getting a second opinion on what's going on. And so, wish there been one one exact person, probably probably overall of my whole football philosophy and kind of culture, I'd probably say Ferguson. But obviously, as I said, he wouldn't even have a clue that he's done that. And from 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 everyone else, they've all they've all played a major part in my development. Brilliant, and just you know, just kind of delve into that a little bit deeper. Then you know, you talked there about uh, really help you know having a majority of people maybe shaping your your mindset and your your thoughts and opinions in terms of where you want to where you want to be and how you want to operate. Can you mind just going into a bit uh, a bit more detail around the fundamentals of what you your coaching philosophy is? Yeah, I think that to be honest. Philosophy is an interesting one for me, and I, I think about as people talk about style of play, tactics, yeah. uh, strategies, all this kind of stuff. And 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 I'm not saying it's not important because it is. Of mm. course, it is. When it comes to philosophy, I think that it's bigger. I think it's a bigger word than just how your team perform on the pitch with what how they use the ball. I think your philosophy is what kind of environment you create, what type of people you want, what what the actions you want within on and off the field how, how do you want your players to behave how do you want your staff to behave how do you behave and for me my philosophy is a bit we're very hard working and, and I think from our perspective we, we want to be a hard working environment where actually you you know what you know, you know why you're working hard because of the, what the results are and that's when you start adding in obviously your, your, your tactics your, your strategies your technical information because this is how we, we this is how we're going to play um I mean, I, I, I admire Klopp. I think what Klopp's done at Liverpool is... I, I don't remember, probably a year and a half ago, I think um, it was the brains. You know, you know, his assistant, the brain left, and everyone's like, this is going to be his downfall. And actually, they, I'd argue they've got even better since he's gone, which is not a disrespect to him, but obviously just shows the man behind the the, the club, Klopp, is, 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 is the real brains in, in the way that he deals with people. And I think that that football philosophy of we're going to be as equally as as good out of possession as we are in possession is is, is crucial and, and, he, and I think he reaps the rewards of that there's not many teams that dominate Liverpool with the ball because they're all over you all the time and if you are going to dominate them with the ball you've got to be you've got to be exceptional to do it and I look at look at his kind of mantra and his philosophy and this goes back to what I was saying about mentors and stuff people that indirectly affect your kind of philosophies and your mantra around how you want the game to be played you take little pieces of that and I'm still developing 
I've got a philosophy on how I want my environment to be and everything. And I've got a philosophy on the fact I want my team to play. I want us to be entertaining. I want us to be aggressive in attack. I want us to be aggressive out of possession. But I'm still, I'm still honing those those little key details around the edge because this was my first full season, albeit I had 16 games with Braintree, my first full season in charge. So from my development pathway as a manager, I'm still still a bit of a baby as well. I'm still learning. Yeah. And just in regards to that, like, what sort of um, lessons as you know, being a first-team manager now to put you? Because you started, obviously, as the assistant at Braintree for the first-team management role here, and now Aldershot. What sort of shift of responsibilities did you see on the day-to-day that you had to be the, the head guy now? Well, it's just a manager role's probably the best role in football. Because I was quite fortunate at Braintree, Hagan, who's the manager at the time, he, he left everything to me with regards to the coaching. Uh, and if we didn't play well, we got all the stick. So I, I couldn't really lose. It was um, it was one of those. And I think that it was an interesting because Hack was good for me because he never really put any restraints on me. If I wanted to, if I wanted to lead lead the conversation or the, the dressing room at any point with talks and that, he let me he let me do it. And I think that I, that's where I was brave and I used it as an opportunity to experiment myself on things that I found would work because there's no disrespect to hate, but it wasn't my neck on the line. I could go in there and I could try something. And, and to be fair to him, he, he backed me on that. So when, when the transition actually came, the only thing that I found difficult and I still find difficult, and I think I always will find difficult, is I'm a bit of a control freak when it comes to how I want things done. And it's it's letting that little bit go trust-wise to people, even though you know they can do it and everyone's more than capable of doing it. I like to have my finger in all the pies and I want to know what's going on. And that even goes to what goes off on the field, off the field with the, with the backroom stuff, with regards to the commercial, the, the community, the academy, everything. I want to know everything. Uh, and I think that when you talk about bandwidth, especially the FA talk about it a lot, when you talk about bandwidth and what you can actually focus on at one time and, and give it your full kind of quality, as your full qualities to it, I, I stretch my bandwidth quite far and I, I learned, I need definitely need to learn to be better at that. And I think that's probably been the thing that I found most difficult. Um, although I don't necessarily see it as a, a, a horrendous trait, I, I think it's something I do need to get better at and that's that being able to delegate certain things to people to make sure that it actually it gets done because what I do is it all piles up and then I go, oh no, I forgot to do that. Um, and then I end up going, can you do this when I could have just done that in the first place and it, it would have been done on time. So, Just on that then, you know, you, you talk about some of the challenges that you can face, you know, uh, within your role and obviously, you know, I think a large part of what you've described is really about being self-aware of yourself and understanding what your maybe strengths are and what your areas might be to further develop. How do you, I guess, what, you know, is there any particular methods that you use in terms of assessing that for yourself and, you know, and how do you then go on to maybe keep yourself motivated and inspired to keep getting better in that respect? I think I will always be motivated because I don't think you ever achieve everything you want to achieve. I, I think your goals change. So when I first, when I, my first, very first time I walked into West Ham, I was a part-time coach. My job was to become a full-time coach. That was my job. That's what I wanted to do. That was my focus. And when I achieved that, within a month of achieving it, I was already planning my next move and where I wanted to go next. And I think that even if I was 
to get what I want to do, which is managing the Premier League, I probably at some point would want to manage England uh, or another national team. And then if I did that, I'd want to win a World Cup. And if I won a World Cup, I'd want to win two World Cups. And if I won two, I'd want to win three. And I think that that's the beauty of football. You talk about um, it's almost an infinite game because you never really win. If you know what I mean, I know. I know from a micro perspective, you win because you go and get your three points on a Saturday. But in a sense of your lifespan within the game, no, I don't think any manager's ever retired and said they've won football. No one else can win it again because they've won it. They've you, you, there'll be people like your Fergusons and your Guardiolas and your Klopp's and your Ancelotti's and your Sarkis and people like that. Or people go, they were they were the gods of the game, but. They, they, they can't say they've won everything because they didn't win everything because winning everything is winning every trophy every season back to back all the way through until the, the game of football ends and that's never going to happen in someone's lifetime so I think we're quite fortunate to be in a sport where your targets have always been hit so my next targets are I want to get all the shot promoted and when I do that then I've got a new target now A it might be keep them in the league B it might be go again because we've got the result I don't think it ever ends so from a motivational perspective I'm, I'm always hungry to do better I think that obviously there comes a time in your life where you're probably financially if you've, if you've achieved a lot of stuff where you're financially secure for the rest of your life but for me yes obviously I, I want to earn money for my family but for me it's not about the money it's about what, 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 what's your legacy when you finish what, what does it look like who have you helped what have you achieved and it might not be trophies it just might be stupid things you might, I, might, I might be that guy who always manages clubs that are looking to stay in the league every year that could be my role in life and you know what if I went through my whole career and every team I managed I managed to keep them in the division they're supposed to be in then that's my goal to, to achieve that hopefully I'll, I'll get an opportunity to be that guy who, who, who's been asked to win leagues and win trophies and I think that's that's what I'm trying to develop at Aldershot is create an environment where actually they get back to their their history and their roots of actually they're a league club and they were a competitive league club so I think that's that's where I'm quite fortunate in my mindset plus I hate losing <laughs> anything I, I don't care what it is we could we could play charades now on, on this screen and if I lose I'll probably log off because I hate <laughs> it so until uh, and, and every time there's a new challenge I want to do it so um that's kind of a little bit about my kind of nutty background. Yeah, and yeah. Just on that, then, what would you say is you know your biggest, one of your biggest bugbears when it comes to coaching? Then you know, because you know, I'm sure there's been many times, you know, obviously within your time and your experiences, been frustration moments so that you've come across and maybe other coaches that you've encountered and you think, oh, you know, this is a real bad characteristic of coaches that you, that you kind of just get to you. What, what is anything like that for you? I don't. I, I, I hate lazy coaches. Okay. And, and hate hate's a strong word, but I, I hate it. I think they, they just, just so the listeners are, uh, and the viewers are clear on what you mean elaborate. by a lazy coach. You might just elaborate on the characters. I'm, I'm good. I've got some great. I've got some great stories for you. Go I've got for some it. Great stories. So um, hopefully this you, you've got another cut of ass. But um, no, um, for me, and when I say lazy, I'm not talking about get up late and 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 eat breakfast in their pajamas and their lunch in their pajamas. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about people that don't do enough don't do the service for the players that they should be doing um, and I know hate is probably is probably a bit of an over-exaggeration because I don't know them so I don't hate them but I, I, I dislike the, 
the the manner they bring it. And I'll give you an example. I was doing a consultancy session once with the academy manager. Got me and he said, "Look, I want you to go and work with the under ratings age group." There's a mixture of twenty threes in there. There's some of our day release sixteens. Go and have a look. They're doing an eleven v eleven after lunch. Do the session with them first. So I did some coaching with them in the, in the early stages, and then I. Uh, observed the 11 v 11 so the the stage in the morning I could hear him in the background criticising some of the stuff I was doing and I, and, and, and I laugh at it I, I, it doesn't bother me it's like you've, I, I know what I'm going to get out of the session and to be fair I got it and the feedback from the players was good so I was happy and that's one of my bugbears with coaches that stand on the sideline and criticise other coaches and they find it easy to do and we've all got an opinion on how it should look but I, I don't think you necessarily need to be nasty about it so that, mm. that was the first point so I kind of got my back up a little bit so anyway we went into this 11 v 11 game and there's a lad playing in centre midfield and he was all left foot all left foot quite tidy technically good but he was all left foot and then the ball he opened up on his on into his right and he tried to play a pass and passed the ball straight off the pitch um, and I looked at it and I thought well okay it's interesting and I, so I made a comment I made a comment to one of the coaches and said look he, it's interesting he's very one footed isn't he for a, for a second year scholar and he went, oh, he's always been like that. And I was like, oh, okay. Well, he's always been like that? And he went, yeah, he came in. When he came in, I think he came in under 10s. He's never been able to use his right foot. And I was like, oh, okay. So he's under 10s he came in. He's like, yeah. And I was like, oh, okay. And now he's a second-year scholar. And he said, yeah. And I said, and he's never been able to use his right foot in that eight years. He went, no. Nah. I said, well, what have you been doing then? And we all sat there and the whole, the whole, bench and everyone's sitting there the players are on the subs bench everyone's sort of sat there looking at me as if to say I cannot believe you just said <laughs> and it's, but I, I kind of I've been briefed by the academy manager about some of the personalities he had and the fact they don't like being challenged and I'll be honest I don't care if they don't like me or not I'm not I've not got to work with them every day so I was going to be as brutally honest as can yeah. anyway, what do you mean it's, you've had a boy in the building and this is where it gets funny you've had a boy in the building from under 10 to under 18 and in eight years you haven't improved his right foot and his answer was I haven't coached him all that time alright then okay so as a club then you haven't worked on his eight foot well I've only had and then so now it's all about him so I'm saying so what have you done then you've had him for two years you've been the under 18 coach for two years what have you done with him and he said oh well he done and it was all about disrespecting the player da, 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 da. not Just once did he go not taking accountability yeah, do you know what? Fair play, and that's that. That is one of my big bugbears with, especially with. I'll talk about management in a second, but youth development. That's one of my big biggest bugbears, and my second biggest bugbear is. Sorry, just to cap that, so people are clear. Coaches who uh, who criticise players that they can't do something, but then actually don't do anything about helping them to develop. That's the first one. My second one is from a recruitment perspective, when a scout goes out and brings in a talented. And potential, especially from a potential perspective, young player who's got a real unique um, attribute, and then the academy spend the rest of the year trying to coach it out of him because they want him to fit into their possession-based football. That's a bugbear of mine. I think that he's got a strength. That's why he was identified. How does that strength fit in the game? Not everybody can be a passing possession-based player because you end up with with. 500 central midfielders that can all pass the ball sideways and backwards and come off with 95% pass completion but who's going to do what Jaden Sancho can do or Callum Hudson-Odoi can do or Phil Foden who's going to break lines and, and, and destroy teams and so that would probably be my second one from youth development 
Um, I can go on, mate. I've got something in management as well. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, no, that, they, they, were, they were my two biggest bugbears from coaches. And, um, yeah, I, I can probably echo that, like, um, especially the first the first one. I feel like a lot a lot of the times it's the coach just sort of insecurity and, like, addressing that, that kind of comes out when they start criticising the player. I always, always say, um, say to coaches that want to start talking about players is that before you look at the player, uh, have you done the maximum that you could do to help them uh, before you criticise that attribute that you're talking about? Um so just on, just just on that one, yeah. that's a brilliant point you made there because so you know like the, the review process. So players get retained or released at the end of every season or every two years, depending on what phase you're in. Yet, if a player is shot to be released on their release day, again the coaches and the club have not done their job because they have six week reviews, they have twelve week reviews, they have mid and end of season reviews, and if you haven't fed back to that player properly in that time and it's, it's still, they're still going to be upset because be, having that final now in the coffin is, is, is devastating for all children and all families but to be shocked and to have not seen it coming that is yeah that, that's unacceptable because you, when you sit down with that player you've got to be honest and say look this is where you are at the moment however you do it divide the group up into threes whatever it is it, as it stands at the moment we probably won't be retaining you for next season these are the areas we would like you to to work on and give you the opportunity and then give them the exit programs give them the choice we could we can release you now so give you a chance to get a club somewhere else um i, I mean you've got me on a roll now because i, <laughs> I like the, there's so many things i'd change in it i wouldn't i wouldn't do release nights the way they do them i would give the parent the options to the parents I say, look, we're not going to we're not going to retain your son or daughter, depending on whether you're in what game you're in. How do you want us to handle it? Would you like us to have a meeting with him or her? Do you want to tell them? Do you want us to come to you? Do you want us to come to your house? That's a new environment. Danny, we might need a part two on dealing with parents. You know, sorry, we might need a part two on dealing with parents. I, 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 yeah, I'd love to because I think that it's not just parents. I think the clubs don't do themselves yeah. favours at times. I think that they they they. They do what's the easy option. And that's when we go back to lazy coaches. It's easy to sit and say, yes, yeah, your son's doing really well, um, everything, da, 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 da. And then, oh, by the way, we're not going to be retaining you next season. And you're like, what? Six weeks ago, you were telling him he was doing all right. Now he's not He's not being kept. Like, and then they wonder why parents kick off and are so aggressive with stuff. And oh, don't get me wrong, I've had my first chair of awkward parents, but... I, I, there are times where I don't think we've helped and I think we've made it more difficult for ourselves than it needed to be so I just think within the youth development there's still so much they need to get get right just just, just sorry just on that then Danny you, you know you talk there about you sometimes we don't help ourselves I guess you know if you now had to go back to the start of your journey all them years ago and then look at I guess one message that you'd want to give yourself that you could give yourself back then going into a youth development what would that message be to kind of maybe set yourself up on a, I guess, a more, I don't know whether, I don't know if it would be any smoother, but a somewhat smoother journey because of this message that you're about to give them? I think for me, it's about transparency. And I was guilty of it when I first started coaching. It's not about popularity. It's not about always being the most popular coach and the one that every, 
players love playing for and the parents love talking to because I definitely had that when I first started, especially when I was in the days of Chelsea team because it, that was a part of our job was to build that rapport with the parents. And I think for us, it's being, being confident enough that as long as you do it in the right way, having those open, frank conversations with players, because even the best ones, they still need to be told. There's still things that they need to work on and, and clubs are so scared of it, especially now because people just, oh, child welfare issue he's been nasty to my boy he said that he wasn't very good well no actually he didn't say that what he said was he's not quite where he wants to be and I want him released and I want him out actually if you have a clear clear kind of structure in place of how you actually do your proper review processes and they're honest and they are and, 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 you, and you are complimentary you do give them that, that positivity as well but you're also open and honest about what they need to really develop on and realistically what their future is within the next year or two I would change the contract lengths anyway I think if you sign a kid at foundation phase level we should, they should be able to stay for the whole foundation phase if you genuinely do it and I think what that would encourage clubs to do would be more due diligence when they're doing their recruitment under sevens and eights because what they do is they go yeah. you're with us and it don't matter whether we're going because we can just release you in a year's time it's only a bit of free kit for a year and actually if they've got to keep them for three years then actually they might do a little bit more research on the player, the parents. They might have a look at it. Granted, it might mean less players in the system, but yeah. I, again, I mean, there's probably too many players in the system anyway. No, no, that's a great point. I think there is, you know, there is that element and that that thought process. Certainly, from my experience, you know, it's just let's just get in who we can in the door, so the next club doesn't pip them. And if they if they work out, they work out. If they don't, they don't. They just send them back into the, like you said, into the wild, into the grassroots environment, whatever that may be. But I think there's a lot of stuff there that goes overlooked in that the effect that this has on the players themselves as individuals especially as young players with you know with dreams of their own and becoming professionals uh the toll it takes on the parents you know i'm sure you can you can you would agree in that especially at foundation phase the 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 amount of effort and sacrifice that family members and parents and you know siblings or whoever they may be have to make just to support that young player on along that journey and all that just really have the club sitting in the you know, in the back of their minds thinking, well, we just we've just you know grabbed him because we knew someone else was after him. Yeah, and it happens quite a lot, doesn't it? We made a player up once. <laughs> we made a player up. We made him up. Me and me, and me. I was talking to the club. I was talking about some of the scouts at this particular club I was working at at the time, and I'm not. I won't swear on on online, but they they were talking. I was like, oh my god, I cannot believe what I'm listening to. So me and one of the sports scientists and one of the physios, we were sitting there and we had a laugh. We made the, player name, made the player's name up and the guy was sitting on the table behind us and we were raving about this player. He's under seven. Have you heard about it? Blah, 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 blah. I, know, I kid you not, a week later, he was sitting with the other scouts raving about this player. We made him up. Yeah, he didn't know nothing about him. Never seen him play, never seen him work. We, we just made him up. We, we picked a name out of the blue and made up a team and... Just yeah, just made him up. And how old would he be now? <laughs> He'd be under 18s. He'd be under 18s. A second year scholar, yeah? Still yeah, using his right foot. Look, and he still can't <laughs> use his right foot. And um, every review is unbelievable. Um, no, but yeah, no, we just, and, and I think that's, it's lazy scouting. And I think that you, there's clubs that, that old Chelsea got his cladding. They invite him in, they haven't even seen him. And you know what, Chelsea, Chelsea might only have him in because his brother's in the under-13s and they're just trying to keep the family sweet. And yeah. Or Arsenal have got this one in because... And they're all, they're all the clubs do it. It's no, it's no particular <laughs> one club. Just on that, then, you know, uh, what would your advice be to maybe some parents that might be looking at uh, listening to this potential or even watching this 
in terms of maybe some of the due diligence they should be doing as, as parents going into these moments because it's quite easy and I'm sure you've you've witnessed it yourself to kind of maybe pull the wool over a parent's eyes and sell them dreams in that respect what would you say is maybe some of the I guess things to look out for as a parent it's hard because clubs are easily offended if you start asking questions to them they, yeah. they, they get a bit like oh, oh how dare you like we're, we're you can't touch us we're the academy system but I think I'd want to know I'd want to know how many players they're signing at that age group. Um, I'd want to know what their percentage is. So if it's a foundation face player, how many foundation face players that were signed at under nines are still at the club at under 12? So like, is your research done? Are you, are you actually giving the players time to develop? Now, there's all sorts of, kind of reasons why someone might be released, i.e. bad behaviour, or, or they, just might, they might fall out of love with the game. Um, I think that they need to... They need. I'd speak to other parents. I, I, would, I would. Why are you at your pre-academy session over there, and then the under tens are training under there, and why are you having a coffee? And I ask the opinion. How have you found it? What, what have you liked about it? What have you not liked about it? And you'll get an array of different answers depending on where that person's son or daughter sits within the the pyramid of the players. But you'll get some idea of it how it is. And I think, from my perspective, how much does it affect your family? Because siblings suffer more than anyone. They're the ones who end up doing their homework in the canteen of the club. They're the ones that miss out on so much because mum and dad's flying their, their brother or sister up and down the motorway three, four, five times a week. So I'll, I'll just just have a little have a little look at it. And also, every club preaches the same thing. We we're, we're all about player development. We want to produce players for our first team. Okay, how many actually have like? And not just your first team, other first teams. Who's got a good productivity line? And which means that they're obviously very, very astute with their recruitment. It's not it's not an accident. Chelsea, Chelsea's model is not an accident. They work really hard at it. Yes, they've got the resources to have all the groups of players that they have got, but their, their players don't go out on loan to Concord or, or Billericay in, in the South. Their players go on loan to Real Betis or do you know what I mean? Yeah. They they've they've got a They've got a real good model. Um, Definitely. So, I think you've got you've got to, got to be realistic on how it's going to affect your family. And do, would you would you rather your son or daughter be the the bottom of a pile of a really good group at a really top club, or middle to top of a group at actually a smaller club where you might not get as much jelly and ice cream? But you know what? There's going to be a bit more focus on my child than than before. So just. Yeah, it's, it's, it is a minefield. It yeah, is a minefield. Definitely. No, just you know, you've talked a bit about your journey, and there's some really key insights, certainly for myself to take away, and I'm sure Ben and the listeners as well. Just be interested, you know, you've now gone through that whole youth development pathway, you've progressed, you've gone through, you know, your childhood and your time, you know, your time obviously at Chelsea as well, and now, you know, then West Ham and moving on to now first team football, Braintree, and now all the shit. Now, I don't want to get you into trouble here, but what's next for Danny Saul? Yeah, I think the, my, my, I'd say short term, my short to medium term goals are we've, we've put a five year plan in place for all the shop. Um, I would love to, I'd love to get them into the football league. That's kind of what my focus is on with regards to other clubs and whatnot. At the end of the day, I'm contracted to all the shot town. I love it there. And I think from my perspective, I, I've started something and I would like to get an opportunity to, to at least get in the process of finishing it. Um, but like I've said, and I've made no bones about it, I said it to the chairman in my interview and every job I've been at, I want to get to the top and mm. I, I want to do it in the right way and, and, and not necessarily tread on anyone's 
toes, but I, I do want to get there. So if opportunities come up in the future, then obviously I'm going to look at it. But my my my, my goal is to get all the shot promoted and and get that under my under my belt and hopefully have a. I'd love to do with all the shot what Eddie Howe and Jason Tindall have done with Bournemouth. And I'm not necessarily saying we can get all shot in the Premier League because I know it's not football manager, but we can. What we what we can do is what they have proved at Bournemouth is you can do promotions and you can get up and you can do it with a nucleus of the same players. And yeah. uh, Gary Wilde has done it at, at Sheffield United. When you look at the boys he's got there and he's brought through, and I think that that's going to definitely be something that, that interests me. and I'd love to achieve. Fantastic. And just on a final note, there. You know, if you've got 60 seconds now to kind of package away one golden nugget for our listeners and viewers what would that be you've got you've, you've got to find yourself and you've got to really do your work on how you want to be and develop what, what kind of philosophy you want and what environment you want to create and that, that's strong enough and detailed enough that you're not going to change every time someone else changes you've got a real real thick skin when it comes to this is how I want stuff done but that takes time development work hard work a lot of work and, and you've got to really be assured in what you're doing and be able to back it up. Well, there you have it, Danny Sol, first team manager at Aldershot Town. Some really brilliant insights. And, and on that note, guys, uh, if you could just let listeners know where they can get in touch with you. I'm not sure if you've got any social media handles that you, uh, you'd be open to sharing with us, Danny. Yeah, so Twitter, um, Danny underscore Sell, and then Instagram, I'm Danny Sell underscore. Well, there you have it, guys. Another edition of the Coaches Network Insight Series where we sit down with experienced individuals across the multiple disciplines within the coaching world, hoping to explore their journeys and key insights in order to package away some golden nuggets that you can apply to help you reach your full potential. I've no doubt that you've enjoyed today's episode as much as we have, but I just want to say thanks again for tuning in. The support is much appreciated. Please do get in touch with us and today's guests. Let us know where you're listening from to share your thoughts, views and key takeaways from today's show, along with any suggestions you may have for guests or future topics on the show that you'd like to hear discussed. Ultimately, guys, the show is about yourselves. The content is for you and we just want to continue to create that great content. On that note, get in touch with us on Instagram at The Coaches Network and on Twitter at The Coaches Net. And if you want to touch base with Coach Ben, he's available on Instagram and Twitter at FocusBXN. Lastly guys, keep an eye on our socials for the latest updates and announcements for upcoming guests and discussion topics with the panel. And until next time guys, take care. The Coaches Network, bringing the game together. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.